Hello and welcome to Unramblings. I'm Fayfix. And I'm Charlotte. And this week we're talking about Pink Floyd's The Wall. Before we get into that, we have a couple of announcements. First of all, we now have a Patreon. If you're not familiar, that's a place where you can sign up to support us with a small monthly donation, and in return you get access to bonus content, which includes access to a Discord server. Where you can listen to us record live if you happen to be on when we're recording which we're experimenting with right now. You can get bonus episodes called The Lost Rambles, which are all of our bloopers, outtakes, and deleted scenes for each episode. And you can get access to The Pre-Ramble, which is a shorter episode that we record before this one, which is usually a shorter topic that doesn't quite warrant a full episode or something that we've consumed recently. Yeah, just us kind of rambling before the show, this pre-ramble, you know, about what we've been watching and thinking about lately. And finally... If you haven't managed to catch us live, we have a tier which offers you the rambling edition, which is the full unedited version. Well, I say unedited. It's edited for sound quality and to remove excess silence and to put the spoiler warning in the right place. Other than that, you get everything. All the times that we flub and I say something stupid or the cats make noise. You get to hear that. Yep. You can feel like you were right here with us getting mildly irritated by interruptions through the recording. Like we do. I said a couple of announcements because my other announcement was that we're experimenting with live recording. So if you sign up for our Patreon, you can possibly hear us record live in the future. We don't have a set schedule, but just if you manage to catch the window, Charlene just ruined that by bringing it up in the previous one. So now I seem silly. But also you don't just get to listen. There's a live recording chat channel so you can actually comment and we might acknowledge your comment and respond to it as part of the discussion. So it's a way of actually bringing our listeners into the actual recording and the discussion in a way that we've been kind of hoping to do on social media, but it's been kind of difficult to really have that kind of back and forth in that sort of a, you know, later date situation, if any of that made sense. It might have done. Okay. I think the biggest problem with that is that I know that Facebook doesn't show posts to everyone, so we'll get like random comments here and there. But yeah, so if you often have this experience of you're listening to our podcast and you're having this great idea, that would be a really great comment for what we're talking about. And, you know, you can't do that because it's pre-recorded already and we're not actually there. Then the live recording situation is perfect because you can be here and you can say your brilliant contribution and we could be like, oh, hey, that's a really great point and continue on with the discussion, having taken into consideration your excellent points. And it's pretty uncommon that we do what we're doing now, which is recording at 11.30 in the evening on a Monday. Yeah, sure. That's not super common at all. On a Monday, it's less common. True. The other tier, of course, that we didn't mention is that at one of the very low levels, we'll do a shout out. So if you've supported us, then we will, you know, acknowledge you on the podcast. I think that's all the announcements. It is all the announcements. We should actually get on with our episode. Yes. That was only six minutes. It's fine. So Pink Floyd's The Wall. We're going to be talking about both the 1979 album and also the 1982 movie that they released with Bob Geldof. They're effectively the same story, but there are a few differences, and the visuals certainly change the tone in some places. So we're going to talk about both. If you're only familiar with one, I think you're probably okay, but we will spoil the entirety of that narrative. We'll drop any other spoiler or content warnings in right here. Hello! Spoiler warnings are actually non-existent this week. And the content warning is also pretty light. There's some mild discussion of some of the body horror in the film version of The Wall and also of the possible self-harm. Oh, and of course, the drug abuse. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. I realize that that period of silence doesn't help people who are listening live. People won't know that we're going to spoil something before we actually spoil it. That's true. That's the risky run of tuning into the live recording. We could say anything about any work potentially spoil it yeah gonna spoil hamlet for you okay so let's get into it do you want to do a summary of the work no (laughs) maybe someone will put one in chat (laughs) nope so the wall tells the story of pink from birth through to the end of the narrative no that's not good it doesn't cover his birth no it covers his birth so the second song opens with the sound of crying i'm sure it covers his birth Okay. okay okay the wall follows the life of pink a musician who details the ways that various aspects of his life have helped him to build an emotional wall around himself and shut himself off from the rest of the world and how those various parts of his personal life and larger society have damaged him up to a point that he has somewhat of a mental break and possibly an overdose as well 
it's heavily implied that there's an overdose. This is my summary. You can say that in your summary. Oh. And then he gets to a point at the end where his brain is starting to realize the damage that he's done to the people he cares about and that it's not really a sustainable way to live. And even though it's painful, he needs to tear down that wall. Yes. Very broad stroke summary. Yeah. You want to try? Sure. The Wall tells the story of Pink, a successful musician from his childhood up through the point where he's very successful, but also very isolated. The narrative in both the album and the film shows how his relationship with his mom and the death of his father in war when he was young and various other aspects of his participation in society have encouraged him to be more and more isolated and connect less genuinely with people, including dysfunctional relationships with his mom and with his wife and things like that, up to the point where he is shown to have overdosed overdosed on drugs and gotten to a sort of crisis point at which he recognizes that it's not just all of these negative influences that he's had on him that have been building a wall between him and himself himself and other people but also that in doing that he's hurt the people in his life and is also to blame for some of the problems that he's experiencing and that's sort of a two-way street and he has to work to fix that so i think one of the things that i struggled with when i was first watching the film Mm -hmm. i guess we should say that i don't think either of us had ever sat down and listened to the full album before not intentionally, or like not with intention, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I definitely have heard the album before, but I had not sat and like listened to it properly to like unpick the whole story and fully experience it. And I had mostly heard, you know, the songs most people have heard off of that album that play on the radio and things like Hey You and Comfortably Numb and Another Brick in the Wall, but like the cut together version that you get on the radio and I had not seen the film until we sat down to watch it for context of the album I'd certainly only ever heard random songs here and there I don't think it was ever played in my house when I was younger and I've never sought it out in its entirety um I don't think until we started talking about what to do on the podcast and thought of this as a possibility that I really realized that it was a complete narrative it had just never been explained to me in that way Mm -hmm. um I think it's entirely possible that my first exposure to Another Brick in the Wall might have been the cover by Korn. Huh, okay. You're, you say, huh, okay, but I know that you're judging me. No, it's not so much that I'm judging you so much as I'm like, oh, you're really young. I know you're not, like, that much younger than me, but you're enough younger than me and have the, like, I guess, more isolated upbringing. I, I mean, I certainly didn't have exposure to some of the more pop culture things or more recent music. Although... Uh, more recent music came out in 1980 before either of us was yeah born. okay you had to explain michael jackson to me so that, yeah. that's true i did you had never heard billy jean and i still don't understand how that was possible but anyway with watching the movie i got a strong sense of just sort of chronology is for suckers oh sure yeah. um and sort of sitting and thinking about it afterwards i did finally work out what they were doing i don't know whether i was just feeling dense that day or if they didn't quite telegraph it well enough The movie opens with the death of his father Mm -hmm. in a song that's added to just the movie version that's not on the original album. Right. When the Tigers Broke Free. Mm. It then cuts to him in the hotel room that is sort of the scene that you go through a few times. And that's where the whole film takes place, I think. I think it's all within his own mind. It's his memories. And then at the end, he's either dragged out to a performance or he's just having a mental break as he's going to the hospital and it's representative i'm not sure which one i think it is but we'll get to that when we get to it i think but that it is just that it's not that the film doesn't have it's not told in order it's that it's told from a central point with flashbacks let's contextualizing like what led to the overdose right you know how did we get here how did this innocent baby who had loving parents get to this point where he is overdosing in a hotel room yeah but it's doing it in a very disjointed way it's definitely like the wall is not a film that leads you by the hand it is occasionally a film that hits you over the head though like it's this weird combination yeah that's a good way of putting you know like we'll get into exactly what we mean by that i think in a minute i think if we talk about what brings pink to that hotel room first is that fair sure one of the benefits of having the live recording is that i'll no longer do the 
hilarious, very loud sips when I'm taking water to anoint. Hmm. Nothing? Okay. Don't want to deter an audience with gross mouth sounds. Apparently you don't mind being like, okay. <laughs> Sorry, everyone who wants the adventurous ramble, whatever version. Whatever. Rambling edition. They are adventurous rambles. Right, yes. If you become a patron, you get a fun name in our Discord group, depending on what level you sign up for. It's true. This has now just become a huge advert for our Patreon, which is hilarious within the context of the wall. Um, right, so. I don't know. I don't think it's incompatible with the decentralized patronage format rather than being a part of some large, faceless podcasting churning out organization. Sure, fair. Although, if you happen to run a large podcast turning out organization <laughs> and would like to pay us um, <laughs> with this stellar example of quality podcasting. Um, so, Pink tells us this narrative, and it's very much Pink telling us the narrative. Complete with biases. Precisely. Like, he's not a reliable narrator, methinks. In fact, I think we're told that at the end. So, Pink opens with explaining to us all the reasons he is the way that he is. There's a lot of other songs that take place in between, but there's the Another Brick in the Wall part one, two, and three is the the three big events that led to him closing off, which are his dad being killed in the war and his mother being overprotective because of it, the indoctrination and the sort of abuse from teachers in schools. Yeah. Especially as this is taken from a point of view of like corporal punishment still being a thing. Yeah. Uh, there's the whole bit about his teacher like taking out the stresses of his home life on the kids. And then finally, sort of the breakdown of his relationship with his wife, which we'll get into a lot more later. But at best, I think that, that is a situation fueled by the first two bricks and where he's already at at that point and not necessarily his wife to blame in quite the way that he portrays it. At least the way he portrays it at that point in the film and in the album. And one of the things that's interesting about thinking about them together is that there are ways in which the film makes certain themes clearer, but also ways in which the clarity of those themes in earlier parts of the movie ends up making it hard to see that those are the products of an unreliable narrator and are then addressed at the end. That was part of what I was saying. We'll talk about later. Oh, okay. Well, then we'll talk about it later. We'll just call that a teaser. <laughs> but those three points are a big part of him drawing how he is isolated in this society. Yeah, it's how he got to the point of coping with things by sitting in front of the TV and being blitzed out of his mind on heroin or something. We've got this noted down as trauma. Are all of those things able to be defined as trauma from your point of view? Yeah, well, certainly... The death of his father is a traumatic experience. And, like, we see how that affects his ability to interact socially in the world um, and also his idea of himself and, like, the expectations for himself and for men in society, like the dressing up in the uniform and, like, taking unnecessary risks and things like that and playing with bullets. Yeah, I mean, in the movie, we certainly get yeah, that. Yeah, but even just the lyrics in the album talking about, like, how his father was gone and like he's left with nothing you know but a memory and photos in the photo album and things like that in another brick in the wall yeah and the movie includes that scene where it's like he's in the playground and like trying to hold the other kid's dad's hand and like walks them and the dad's like no where's your where are your parents go away yeah and he just gets kind of rejected yeah he also makes the worst sandwich Okay, oh, just slathers some jam on half of a piece of bread and like just eats it sort of halfway, like taco style. It's yeah. more of a more of a jam taco than a sandwich. But he doesn't even like fold the bread. He just like like he puts jam. In, like I feel like he was directed go and put some jam on some bread and then get here by this point in, so that it lines up with the music. It's like, <laughs> Poor child actor. I don't know what he's doing now. No, it's... I have DB probably. Yeah, but I mean, anything that traumatizes you can be traumatic. I mean, the ongoing relationship with his mother where she's putting all her fears on him and making him feel like the world isn't a safe place due to her overprotectiveness and, you know, general anxiety, like, clearly traumatized him, clearly made him feel as though the world was not safe and as though other people were not safe to connect to. Um, and then he ends up, not being able to maintain a like 
genuine emotional connection with his wife and be honest with her about what's going on with him and just withdraws. And then when she rejects him because, you know, he's been rejecting her in a lot of ways for a long time, that also is traumatic. Even if it's very foreseeable and pretty understandable. Would you say that his wife leaving him can be considered traumatic? If it traumatized him. I mean, what's the technical definition for that? I'm not sure. Oh. You can look it up, or you could. No, no, I, I just thought you might know. A deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Okay. So, but, I mean, uh, I would say that the death of his father is the like main sort of inciting trauma, and then also maybe the serious childhood illness he had and his mother's like overprotectiveness related to both of those things kind of created a kind of stressful and traumatic like childhood environment but the situation with his wife is more of the result of those traumatic experiences his part of his reaction to it is his inability to maintain a close emotional relationship so that all sort of comes to a head with the groupie who he's sort of i think brought back because he's trying to find some sort of connection but then seems to regret that and just want to watch TV and shut out the world. Is that fair? That is kind of confusing. Yeah, it's, it seems like performative almost. Like, this is a thing that will make me feel better because society tells me it will make me feel better. But it's actually not what he needs or wants. What he actually wants is the genuine connection. I mean, there's the the song that's all about like trying to call on the phone and like the person that you want to connect with not being there. And that's really the issue is he wants that deeper relationship and fulfillment emotionally. And that's not something he's going to get with this strange woman that, you know, he pulled back from backstage at a show. He's He needs support and what he's getting is someone who's very impressed with him. Yeah. Which leads to him shutting her out as well or scaring her away mm-hmm. and then being in that full isolation. Yeah. Well, like going back to the thing with the groupie, like, I saw a thing about how men are socialized to not accept much in the way of physical touch and are conditioned or like told by society that they should always be ready to have sex, that sex and sexual contact is like the main form of physical intimacy and like emotional intimacy that a lot of men get in our culture mm-hmm. in the last few decades. And so sometimes men think that they want sex when what they actually want is physical closeness and touch and like to be held but the only socially safe way of getting that kind of validation and emotional contact is they're told through sex Hmm. and so i wonder if there's something to that in this scene where like he he wants someone to hold him and someone to make him feel loved and cared for and like he matters to them but the only way society is telling him it's okay for him to have that is if it's in the context of a sexual encounter. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd suggest that it was intentionally written that way necessarily, but I certainly think that that's a good reading of it. I mean, I could see that being some of the underlying threads in that situation of like, you think you want to hook up, but that's not what you want. Yeah. And when you have the hookup right there, you're like, this is not what I want. This just feels hollow and like unfulfilling. Why is this not making me happy and shutting down? Yeah. So from there, the narrative gets um, strange. I mean, it's strange from the beginning. Yeah. Um, it's the wall. I think it's pretty known for that. So a lot of this we'll get more into in depth in a moment when we're talking about sort of wider social issues, as I think a lot of what sort of crops up in those songs is more about the wider issues in the world. But as far as Pink's journey goes, if I were Pink Floyd's management <laughs> when this album and that movie came out, I would need to reevaluate how I was doing my job because the manager in the uh, story's role is to turn up to someone who has had an overdose and get someone to give him enough other drugs that he can stand up and go and do a show. Yeah. Which is not the support that he needs. <laughs> yeah. You get a whole lot of very weird metaphorical stuff in the film following that. And it ultimately comes to, I think, Pink sort of realizing what he's done and the damage that he's caused and how and what some of the problems that have led him to that point are. And you get sort of this war within different fragments of his mind, or I guess a legal battle is actually how it's portrayed. But 
even within the legal battle, I think the best way I can make sense of it still has one character in that battle taking on two sides of the argument, or at least it being interpreted that way. With the judge? Yeah, because the, the lawyer and the judge effectively say, like, you've shut these people out, and that's hurt them, and that's a bad thing. And your punishment for that is to be exposed to them and other people in general? What do you think? Yeah, I think an important piece of that is that the crime, quote-unquote, is showing feelings of an almost human nature. Yeah. Which is, like, he's tried so hard to isolate his emotions and thus also himself from everyone and not show that he has any of these problems but has failed. And so the crime is that he was not able to be fine, you know. He couldn't fake it until it was okay, you know. And because then he's made it clear that there is something wrong and he has feelings, he's upset about things, he cares about people, then you have to follow through on that. Once you have gotten to the point where you've tried ignoring the feelings and they will not go away, the only thing to do about it is to do something about it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so. It's just, it's very strange with the way that that song is set up as to just how some of the points of view work and like... Yeah, it seems very contradictory that like the crime is showing feelings and so the punishment is to be vulnerable and have your feelings exposed, basically. Unless the emphasis should be on showing feelings of an almost human nature Mm. and it's the fact that it is performative, but... No, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's that there are cracks in the wall that he had been trying to maintain. And it's like, well, if you can't do this perfectly, then you're not going to do it at all. Yeah. I think that the final, final song does make it clearer, if not clarifying. Let me get a song name here, because otherwise I'm just... You're talking about the part that says explicitly that, you know, people will beat their hearts against the wall and some of them are going to leave? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, outside the wall. I don't think it really clarifies the trial, but I think it does clarify the message of if you try and shut people out forever, eventually you'll succeed. Yeah. And in addition to that, at some point, some part of you knows that that's actually not what you want and that's not what you need. And in order to get out of it, once you've built the wall up, you can't get out by yourself. And I think that's a really important part of this is that Pink has built up the wall so high And for so long that he doesn't know how to break it down. He doesn't know how to get past it. He needs people on the other side to support him in making those connections and bringing it down. And unfortunately, because people have been trying to get through the wall, some of them have become discouraged and hurt in that process and are not going to be there to support him when he is ready to recognize that he needs help from beyond the wall. Well, there is. And I mean, it was cut from the movie but because of like repetition of scenes and stuff. But the song Hey You does seem to be him reaching out to people outside the wall. Yeah. But none of them really being in a position to help him. I don't know that it's, they're not in a position to help him, but it is him acknowledging getting to a point where he knows that he needs help and he is feeling very distant from people, but he's acknowledging that he needs help anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the opening lines of the song don't paint people who are in a great situation, because it's, hey, you, out there in the cold, getting lonely, getting old, and you feel me, standing in the aisles with itchy feet and fading smiles, like, those don't seem like happy people, at least, so I don't know whether they're capable of helping, I guess, but, yeah. It does certainly go on to a point later in the song of it being that him sort of explaining that the wall is now too high for him to be able to get out himself, so... Yeah, and I think that it's not necessarily inappropriate that the people who are on the other side of the wall that he wants help from also have their own damage going on. And some of that might be from having tried to support him during periods of time that he's been really self-destructive and you know isolating himself from everyone who cares about him. There's the line in the last song about, you know, bashing your heart against some mad bugger's wall. And... I think that's an important acknowledgement that, like, you can get help from people who aren't perfect. Just because his mom was overprotective and put a lot of her anxieties on him and is at the root of a lot of his issues doesn't mean that she's not also a supportive and loving influence in his life who can be there for him when, say, 
he needs somewhere to be discharged to from detox. You know, people can be complicated like that. Yeah, that's fair. So we've been sort of dancing around it a little bit. I think we should get into some of the larger social things that this is talking about. I mean, I think that it's probably fair to say that Pink's narrative is a framing device for a lot of the things that this album wants to say about the world. Could be. I think it is also just trying to get through a lot of personal trauma. Yeah. Um, But I think some larger issues are very evident in it as well, obviously. Yeah. I don't mean to say that it's it's not about Pink's story. I think that like that's an important part of it, but I think it does help to lead us through the other things that they want to say. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I think that a lot of the wider social things are made much more explicit in the film than they are in the album, almost to the piece's detriment, I think. I'm not sure it's necessarily to the detriment. It's just they're very different media, and I think that some things do get a little confused or obscured or might be more likely to be misinterpreted because of the fact that we're visual creatures and so we're going to, I think, mentally prioritize the visual information over the lyrics specifically in this case and, like, the musical cues. Yeah, that, I mean, I think we probably consciously prioritize the visual stuff. I think not necessarily the lyrics but the musical cues probably are subconsciously influencing us more than we realize. That's that's fair. I think the biggest thing that I think certainly I was getting towards the end of the film and I was like, am I comfortable with this? Is like what what is this movie trying to say here? Was with some of Pink's like misogyny. His portrayal of his mother is as being overprotective and kind of ruining his life by being overprotective. And then we've mentioned a little bit the portrayal of his wife is like she left him for some other guy. And how dare she? And that's part of what's built this wall when there are scenes in the movie where other songs are playing, but like he's lying on the bed and like she's trying to engage with him in intimacy and he's just like ignoring her to watch the TV, like leaning around her or like she's coming to try to talk to him when he's at the piano and he's just staring at her, but not actually acknowledging her in any way. That portrayal and that blame that gets laid at those people's feet combined with some of the very strange imagery in some of the animation. Yeah, with the quote-unquote fucking flowers animation. Yes. Which is what that's, that scene's literally referred to as. I, I think believe. by Roger Waters. Yeah. Well, there's also the scene in the hotel room mm-hmm. where, the, where it's like not real, but like it's zoomed out and the room is huge and there's the shadow of the woman. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about that is like, yeah, even though there's a bunch of stuff included like the larger context of his relationship with his wife and how not engaged with that relationship he'd been prior to the point at which she either has separated from him and is seeing someone else or has cheated on him or whatever. It's kind of unclear as to the timeline with that. But it gives you the fuller context of the fact that he ignored her and she tried repeatedly to you know, connect with him. And you know, it shows the larger context of, like, his father's death and, like, his illness and things like that that kind of contextualize his mother's overprotectiveness. And just like when you're writing something like every word, every scene, it's there for a reason. And if the overall message was intended to be misogynist, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to keep all of that there. Like, if we're supposed to come away with this thinking, oh, Pink's mother ruined his childhood and made him scared of the world and then this horrible woman broke his heart, and, like, that was supposed to be the takeaway is that women eat you alive, like in the fucking flowers scene, then those other scenes wouldn't be there to show that larger context where there are explanations, there are reasons, there, there's more complexity to it. And then at the end, you get the part in the trial where there's the acknowledgement that Pink has hurt those people in his life who've been trying to support him and caused them to suffer in ways that have led to some of their behaviors that have caused him to suffer and feel more isolated. It's kind of this recursive cycle. And it's hard to see past, like, the bias of Pink with the misogyny for, like, the majority of the movie. Yeah. But when you get a little distance on it, and when you, especially if you pay close attention to the lyrics, especially with the trial, then you can kind of see, okay, no, that is intentional bias. Like, it's misogynist, for a lot of that part, because this is the story of Pink breaking through a lot of those negative and dysfunctional beliefs about the world and beliefs about his life. 
but I worry that you can run into a sort of fight club problem where people are just not going to see that. Like they're not going to get the bit at the end where it's saying, no, that's not how you explain the world. It's not all women's fault that your life is shitty and you've decided to cope in unhealthy ways and cut yourself off from people. That is not all women's fault. It's a complex situation that is an interplay between your actions and the actions of others. And it's harder, honestly, than that. Yeah. I really hope that there weren't people who were watching this film and like left a few minutes early to get out the car park or something. <laughs> because like there is a whole huge reversal at the end. And I mean, even if you're just not paying full attention, it is blink and it's gone. There's a lot of distracting things, especially when on screen where you've got the weird buttocks and genitals judge. Mm-hmm. I've got the word for judge for a moment. Mm-hmm. Waving around all over the screen. Some of his lyrics you're probably not paying full attention to because you're asking other questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then Outside the Wall is such a brief song on the end. Mm-hmm. Like you don't see Pink from the trial or onward. Like he doesn't appear at the end of the film in any way, which I think is an interesting choice. Yeah. I think the way that they choose to end it reflects much more on some of the larger social themes that it's getting at. Yeah. Rather than that individual narrative of that one man's experience with, you know, journeying from emotional isolation to trying to work through that. Yeah. I could have seen them doing something where he's like walking down a street or he's in a room or something and it pans down the street or something to show his presence in that world. But I don't know. But no, I do very much worry about the Fight Club effect, mm-hmm. which I, I think we've talked about on the podcast. Maybe we'll do a pre-ramble or something on that at some point. Yeah, um, this is like people who just take the wrong message and like the message they take is actually exactly the thing that is being critiqued by the work. It's like, no. <laughs> we, we have somewhere a depressingly long list of things that we think fall afoul of it. But. Yeah, I think it's just one of the ones that more people are likely to recognize and know what we're talking about. Yes. I think it's also the first one that I experienced as like, hang on a minute. <laughs> People always talk about this film and they go, isn't Tyler Durden cool? And, and it's like, no. I've watched this film and the answer is no. <laughs> Talking of which, conformity. <laughs> right. So with those bricks that he talked about at the start, I think that the whole situation with his wife is a very separate situation because I think it's influenced by the first two and I think it's more of a personal thing than it is a wider thing and I think it's more self-inflicted. But those first two bricks that he talks about, one is his dad having died in a war, and the other one is the issues that he has within the institution of school. I think there's a very strong through line about talking about the problem of institutions and their indoctrination of the masses for our society. Yeah, I would argue that the wall in the wall is not just the emotional wall, but also like a wall where the bricks are people, where society is molding us all trying to mold us all into identical little blocks to be used and to perform in the way that they need to support these structures like consumerism and military industrial complex and existing power hierarchies basically yeah and i think that's fairly well substantiated by a scene in the movie and it's a little bit of a strange one because it's the song what shall we do now which isn't on the album, it's on the album It's Empty Spaces, which is like a shorter reprise of it. The original What Should We Do Now song was cut for time on the original album. It sort of delves into issues of consumerism, but you see all the factories and shops being built down the landscape and forming a wall in themselves. Right. And I think that sort of plays into what you're saying there of like, the wall isn't just his mental wall. Yeah, and during another brick in the wall and you see all the children who are literally being fed into a meat grinder and that relates back to all of the themes about war and this larger society that is throwing lives away and turning people into corpses. Yeah, I think that the number of bits of imagery that relate the institution of school to the institution of war is... More than we could enumerate here. I mean, you've yeah. got the teacher as like a drill sergeant and having the kids all marching down and standing in rank and file. Mm-hmm. In uniforms that are more military than school uniforms. But even there, like the, that uniform thing was already there. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then going on to have like a full revolution against them. Right. You know, like throwing teachers on fires and things, which is pretty graphic. Yeah. Again, will not lead you by the hand, but will hit you over the head. Yes. 
that trying to work out what the exact story is is difficult, but trying to work out what messages they're trying to give you, not so much. Yeah. And that is one of the benefits of the visual edition of it being a movie is that they can make a lot of those themes very clear and very explicit. So you are not going to miss them. But it also means that because they're trying to cover so many things, it ends up feeling kind of disjointed and almost feels like it's jumped from one thing to another kind of out of nowhere at times, particularly when it's moving from like the more internal life of Pink and his specific experience of childhood and things to these larger, you know, rants against indoctrinating school children and pursuing wars and all of that stuff. Yeah, which um, I think leads us on to the In the Flesh songs. Which is a little bit weird to have two songs on the same album name the same thing but not be exactly the same song. And one is sort of a reprise of the other, but I'm pretty sure the second one is longer. It's the opening song where we knew this was going to be a really peaceful film to watch at the moment because it opens on like the war and then Pink in sort of a fascist type costume giving a speech from a balcony as sort of riots with the police are going on below them. Uh, yeah. But the In the Flesh is the opening song where he's giving that speech and then the one where he's giving the speech slash show in mm. the auditorium. Right. They don't play around with the fascism imagery. Not um, at all. Again, super heavy-handed. Pink is literally dressed up in black with slick back hair and a red armband with two hammers crossed on it. There um, are banners. like It's very much they're recreating Nazi rallies, but with crossed hammers instead of the swastika yeah which was the uh point at which i went wait a minute and realized that yes of course this album came out much closer to world war ii than it did to now and that's that's a little depressing but yeah and i think it makes sense because like the vietnam war dredged up a lot of trauma related to world war ii even in britain where you know britain wasn't really involved in vietnam but the americans were and that shit was televised as all get out yeah, I think it there's a a strong narrative that runs in both the UK and the US that by the time World War Two ended, we'd pretty much fixed everything and stuff. And then you start looking at things at the dates for things like the civil rights movement or when homosexuality was legalized in each country, and you're like, no, no, like there's a reason these problems are still here. They haven't resurged since 1945. They they just never went away. Yes, no. I mean, I definitely agree with you. The rally scene is it's very disturbing with the explicitness of it and the calling out of all of the different groups that are targeted and were being targeted in the 70s, like interracial couples, gay people, anyone who seemed to be different in any way or anti-authority, people who smoked weed. Like here, a, a big part of trying to criminalize that was very much rooted in racism as well. So similar to the interracial couple thing. Yeah. So there are a lot of problems that are brought up in that scene that are still problems. There are in some cases laws that make it illegal to discriminate or brutalize people for those reasons, but that doesn't mean it's not still happening. Yeah. Um, I think that it's key that when he's yelling and telling people to round people up, Mm-hmm. It's phrases like, that one looks Jewish, mm -hmm. and it's all about appearances and what mm -hmm. you think someone else is. There's been, we're recording this shortly after 9-11, 2020, and there's just been some stuff going around, and there's things about, you know, people whose Muslims' fathers, like, shaved their beards and stopped wearing a turban after 9-11 because they knew they'd be attacked for what they looked like. Yeah, uh, it is all about what people think you are but it's not like the people who are bigoted are going to ask you a series of questions to determine whether you actually fit their category of bigotry or not right i mean the thing is is that it is that conformity thing and it's most important that you all look the same yeah well, you can't build a wall with a whole bunch of differently shaped bricks right. really you can it's a lot harder and you need a lot more mortar and it's not as strong yeah i was gonna say <laughs> have you driven around wales yeah you can, but it's easier and more efficient for... I mean, it depends on the style of wall building. Because anyway, there's various styles. There's an analogy. No, okay. <laughs> I know I'm usually the one that does that. Yeah. But it goes back to what I was saying about that wall is people, you know. Every time you say that, like, I just have... So I like green as people. Right. <laughs> exactly that. I'm glad that you went there as well. Yes. But I think that having 
Pink up on the stage yelling that stuff, and then the scene in scenes in Run Like Hell. I mean, Run Like Hell is about people being eradicated for being different. Yeah. And narratively, it's that point where Pink has the realization of, oh God, what have I become? Yeah. I'm part of the problem. I'm enforcing a lot of these bullshit ideas of superiority and conformity, and I don't understand why I ever thought that was okay. Yeah. And I I don't know enough of the history of Pink Floyd or like the other people that were going on at the time. The fact that he's supposed to have gone to a show because it's propping him up to go to the show and then mm-hmm. he's going and giving this rally. Whether Pink Floyd were worried that that's how people were sometimes interpreting any of their music. I don't know. I don't think that was ever their intention, certainly. But. Like a similar situation to like Eminem's concerns with Stan. Right. And I Wait, think... I'm glorifying this as a way of exercising my demons. Are people actually thinking I glorify this? Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's that Fight Club thing again of just like... Yeah. Like the misogyny is one thing. Like I certainly felt very uncomfortable when we got to that point of the film. I was like... With the Nazi rally stuff and yeah. the um, brutalizing people in the streets. Yeah. It was uh, akin to how I felt when we were watching Being John Malkovich, but more so. Yeah. Which we're not going to do an episode about. No. But we might do a pre-ramble about it. We might do a pre-ramble, but we're not doing a full episode. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean, because I had a similar level of discomfort of like, where is he going with this? Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, if you stick with it, where he's going with that is this is fucked up and we're all complicit in things like this, even if we don't understand the way that they're like this. You know, a lot of us are encouraged by various forces in society to conform, to encourage others to conform, to quash the individuality of other people, and to hold bigoted views that we don't necessarily acknowledge or realize or recognize. And that's a problem, and it's something that we need to be internally like looking at and challenging. But it can be hard to see. Again, like the, the flip around at the end, it's way more subtle than any of the like beating you over the head during like the meat of the movie. And again, like as we've discussed, that's concerning. Yeah. I think if you're listening just really closely to the album, you're going to have fewer problems with that. Very much so. I think there you get a much more balanced idea of like, he's pointing out these are issues and that we shouldn't be conforming just because it makes life easier and more comfortable in certain ways. We should be challenging the assumptions and the presumptions that are fed to us. Hello? Yes, um, I agree. I was just trying to read what I'd written on my notes. Always a challenge. Mm. I would say that, like, I've really enjoyed doing this album and the David Bowie one because it gives you a really good reason to do what I think people should do with albums, which is to sit and listen to them. I think music has very much become something that we just put on in the background a lot of the time. I know that it's certainly something that I find it very easy to have on just, like, in one ear while I'm working or on in the car, and it just, I tell my phone to play me music and it will play me three years of music before it gets bored. It doesn't have that good of a battery life, but especially with concept albums like this one, I think it's important to sit down and really listen to what it's saying, which I think is what people used to do more. And one of the reasons I'm glad that vinyl's coming back, because it brings back that intentionality to it. Just because you have to flip the record every 20, 30 minutes. Right. You can't just put music on and walk away. If you walk away, then 20 minutes later, it's very quiet and you have to go back and rethink your life. Yeah, I think there's some danger in, you know... Having this sort of, ah, in the good old days, people really listened to music, and I don't think that that's necessarily fair. I think that... I mean, they were probably stoned out of their gourds if they were doing it, but... (laughs) I think that there have always been artists putting out things that were meant to be listened to intentionally and were more conceptually thought through and trying to say something and make a statement, and there still are now. I mean... There are a lot of artists out there who are still trying to do things like this. I mean, even like Black Star came oh, out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. And, I'm um, not for suggestions for a second trying to suggest that artists aren't producing stuff that would benefit from listening like this. Mm-hmm. I my concern is more that people don't sit down and listen to albums as much. I know because of how much trouble I have to sit down and listen to an album. People will buy me an album for my birthday, and then four months later, they're like, oh, what did you think? I'm like, well, I haven't had a good hour and 10 minutes to sit down and listen, so I haven't actually listened to it yet, because I want to listen to it properly when I do. Boarding House Reach came out a year or two ago, and listening to this and 
like that's one of the albums that we did sit down and listen to intentionally but listening to this musically and how some of it fits together what makes me want to revisit that because i'm pretty sure that jack white had this in mind when he was writing it really you think so i think some some of the songs like everything you ever learned mm. i think is probably drawing on this quite heavily uh corporation a lot of the sort of shouting rally type stuff and a lot of the discordance that happens i could maybe see that yeah which was one of the things that sort of struck me musically about how this fits together is that there's not a lot of songs in here that have got a strong chorus no this album and this film are not necessarily designed for easy listening or watching like they're not trying to please you in any way and they're very punk in that way they're not trying to be fun necessarily they're they have a message and they are getting that message across and if that makes you uncomfortable good that should the message is supposed to be uncomfortable yeah and i think that there are some parts of it that are definitely quite intentionally done to make you uncomfortable i mean obviously there's stuff like the masks the kids wear mm-hmm. are just creepy um but even there's... just musically there's musical choices that are there to make you uncomfortable sure we may even have some of them noted down i mean while you're talking about visual things there's just a trend of certain uncomfortable scenes going on too long and not too long as in they needed to be cut but like long enough that you start to feel uncomfortable and then it's still going on and you just have to kind of sit in the discomfort until it comes to a conclusion and they decide to move on and it there are similar things done musically like there are some uncomfortable discordant notes and creepy sounds or just disturbing sounds that are played at certain parts and they go on long enough that you are not going to not notice them, if that makes sense. Like it's not supposed to be subliminally bothering you. It's supposed to be actively bothering you. Yeah, I mean, um, the song Don't Leave Me Now is very much like that. It's got sort of an uncomfortable tone playing for a chunk of it. It's the one where he's in the hotel room and in like has the outburst and breaks everything. Yeah. And he, like, breaks the window and, like, you see him put his hand on the glass and cut himself. Like, all scenes that are done to get that sort of visceral reaction. Mm-hmm. I know that I had... There's that feeling you get when, like, you realize that you're up very high mm-hmm. and, like, your legs feel a little bit strange. Like, I definitely had that when he was leaning out the window like that. Yeah. I think there's, like, a similar, like, buzzing tone at some point that's similar to, like, the bees noise. Yeah. That is intentionally used in like horror movies and things, but it's often masked in situations like that. It's not masked here. And I think you mentioned at one point, like the singing is like a semitone off or something for some of the songs where like you can tell like that it's not quite what your brain expects it to be. Yeah. And that's done in a way that makes you just slightly disturbed. And I think that's the point. There yeah. are a lot of choices there to disturb you, um, both musically in the album and visually in the film. Yeah, that's uh, Goodbye Blue Sky, mm. where it's got the did, 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 did you see? All the lyrics are just just off of, from the music a little bit. And it's in the movie, it's played over the an animation sequence that like has a lot of symbols of death and graves and eagles like there's definitely like an imperial eagle that's flying over and like rips out a chunk of the ground and the blood comes away as it pulls away with the ground yeah so it's all that sort of destruction of nature and lives Mm -hmm. all the people who then turn into crosses yeah covered in blood yeah there's um one of the big trends that happens in the first half of the film is there's sort of traditional musical styles that get inverted You keep saying inverted. I really think it's subverted. Like you have an expectation when you hear those themes that are familiar in a particular context and in this case often associated with an institutional presence. And then that is interrupted often violently in both the music and in the visuals, depending on what you're talking about. I don't think that it's always interrupted. Sometimes it's just um, they're side by side. I mean... One of the ones that, you know, I think everyone would know is in Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 when they're singing We Don't Need No Education. Mm -hmm. And you've got 
the kids singing in a sort of choral form. Yeah. That calls to mind all those like school choirs, church choir type institutional ideas, but then it's done with a revolution. Well, it kind of changes. Like at the beginning, it's like a choir, but over time it gets more and more like a chant. Yeah. Like a protest chant. You get a similar sort of thing with Vera and Bring the Boys Back Home, mm-hmm. where it's these more traditional sounding songs, like particularly Bring the Boys Back Home. It's like this sort of patriotic type situation, except they're being like, we need to end the fucking war. Yeah. So um, I, I suppose they're not always interrupted, but they are always subverted. Like the expectation that goes along with that type of music is then not fulfilled. In fact, it's countered by the rest of the context yeah so one of the things that we can't talk about this album without talking about is sort of the repetition of musical phrases throughout Mm -hmm. which i don't know how to pronounce the word but i'm told is i'm gonna try and say leitmotif l-e-i-t-m-o-t-i-f i don't know how to say that either maybe google this probably is that the thing where like the bars from some parts of it are in other parts so that you're called to mind those parts and the themes associated with them, like we were talking about Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, I think it's Litmotif. Litmotif. Yeah, so Litmotif, uh, where it's a current theme throughout a musical or literary composition associated with a particular person, idea, or situation. Yeah. The baseline for Another Brick in the Wall, I think, is the most consistent yeah. It just sort of crops up somewhere. Yeah, it's in a lot of the other songs, and sometimes it's included in a subtly altered way, where like if you're listening closely, like you know, you know it. You're like, that's familiar. It's almost another brick in the wall. It's just slightly different, and so it cues you to be thinking about those same ideas that are raised in those parts of the album and film. It's a really cool like auditory shorthand. And I think that this is somewhere where it is done spectacularly well. I would agree with that. And in something where I think the film can feel a little disjointed because it's trying to so heavily handedly show you some things that you sort of jump from one idea to the next. But having that recurrent musical theme means that the album as a standalone piece does really pull together, I think, more so. I would agree with that. I think it works a lot more smoothly. I wouldn't say that the film is bad or anything or like not as good as the album. They're, they are very different. I think that the album is a lot more cohesive. Yeah. I don't know about the production system for this as to whether they knew they were going to make a film or not. Like the way that some of the transitions between songs are handled, like there's really a full break between two songs. It often like fades into the next one. Which definitely adds to that cohesion. Yeah. Oh, there's the song um, Young Lust, mm-hmm. where it's performed in a very upbeat, like, rock way, but, like, the music itself is very negative. Like, I think it's a minor key. Mm. And, like, on the screen, when you're watching the movie, Pink is very clearly unhappy. If you were to listen to just the lyrics, mm-hmm. I think it would sound like a positive song. Yeah, it's... It's got a similar sort of thing as we were talking about before where it's a little disturbing. Like there's an ominousness to it where it's communicating that this is not a healthy thing. This is a toxic thing. And or at least not even necessarily that it's unhealthy or, or toxic. But I think it's that same thing I was talking about before where like he grabs the groupie to take home to his hotel room. And but that's not really what he wants. Like it's. There's no heart in it. There's no genuine lust in Young Lust. It's performative, you know? So the lyrics are what society is telling young men they want, but the tone and the music, like the tone of the actual singing and the music is missing the actual fire of those feelings. Yeah. So a few other musical elements and sort of just sort of allusions and similarities that I want to reference. Okay. I wish that we'd had the word litmotif when we were talking about Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, definitely. Because we definitely spent a long time trying to say that, and having a word for it would have really helped. Yeah. Um, that's definitely a similar sort of thing. There are a few points in the music where it's all but one. I sort of assumed that they must have stolen this from Pink Floyd, and actually the wall comes afterwards. It's just that they're made around the same time. 
there's some sort of allusions to Bowie type things early on. Yeah. Um, there's a comment about a space cadet glow in the first song. Space cadets referenced a couple of different times in it. At least twice. Yeah. Well, in the show is the one that's repeated, so it might just be that it's in there twice. But it's that, like, oh, this isn't what you're expecting is sort of like this, oh, this isn't David Bowie sort of thing. Which is funny because there are a couple of songs on here that have a distinctive, like, this kind of sounds like a Bowie song. But that could just as well be Bowie doing things that sounded similar later because his work was always changing and he drew a lot of influence from artists' new music over the course of his career. So He's the one I'd be less sure about. Um, There are a couple of points, one that you picked out and one that I picked out, I think, where it sounds weirdly like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, and I can't quite place it. I think it's like there's a part toward the end that reminds me of the part in Rocky Horror Picture Show where Frank and Rocky, well, Rocky is climbing up the Archeo Radio Picture Tower with Frank on his back. Um, and they fall into the pool. And I don't know what it is about it. I couldn't find a bit of the soundtrack that matched, because I think it's between songs. Yeah. But there's just something about it's this fanfare, but it sounds kind of muted or sad and, like, off. That was in the uh, reprise of In the Flesh. So if anyone knows what she's talking about and wants to send us a link, we'd love it. But also just like it was one of our first notes when we were watching the film was that there was some Rocky Hero Picture Show-esque-ness to the music in the film. Which would make a certain amount of sense. I mean, that came out in 1975 and this right. came out in 1979 and 82. So those would have been, I mean, they were, it's a cult classic, so maybe not you know, widely known, but it wouldn't surprise me if similar circles were aware of it. Yeah. No, and I mean, I'm not trying to say that any of this is a bad thing. The thing I'm amused by is that in the trial, we thought that it sounded a lot like Sweeney Todd at some points. There's like the I'm crazy lines that sound a lot like one of Mrs. Lovett's songs, Mm -hmm. um, which amuses me because it's actually from the same year. And I mean, there could be other influences that kind of led to both of them, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's just they were all being made in the same decade. Yeah. There is definitely a a sense of time to the album and the film. Yes. To the style? Yes, that's what I mean. Um, it's depressing how much that's not true for the content. Yeah. The other thing with the music and the sense of time was also like the disco elements, mm. which I was surprised to recognize, but have always been there. But if you're listening to it, like it's very much like, oh, yeah. This is very disco, actually. It's like sad disco, but it still has a lot of those same elements and mu- musically. I mean, at, at certain points, some for the catchier to... for the catchier songs on the album. Yeah, happiest days of our lives. Another brick in the wall, part two. I think is where we actually noted it. I think that might be all of the main things that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, I think so. Anyone listening to the live recording will now learn exactly how long we sit there trying to work out what to do for a big question. Sometimes we have one in mind in advance, but not always. See, sometimes we go for the nice pop-out one of, like, what, what is this movie trying to say? Well, it's fairly explicit. Yeah. Can't really do that with the wall, because it, it already told us very clearly what it's trying to say. Don't build walls between yourself and other people. Also, don't conform for the sake of conformity. Think for yourself. There, we did it. We answered the big question. But I think the bigger question, no, we I mean, we can. We can do that. Um, it would be a little bit of a cop-out, though. But I think the big question is, which of the two forms of this narrative communicates the messages the most effectively? It's a little bit difficult because I saw both of them, but one after the other. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit hard not to be biased. Saw both of them? Well, consumed both. Um <laughs> It's difficult because I think that the movie adds a lot of background that's missing from the album to mm-hmm. give a fuller picture of some things. There's the scenes for Comfortably Numb, which suggest that while Pink was ill as a child, he'd been taking care of a rat secretly beforehand. And because he was ill and unable to go and tend to it for a few days, it died. Which I think is an interesting addition to the story, 
and not having it in the album, you know, it's less of that communication, but I don't know that it is entirely necessary. I think with regards to the smaller messages, the film does a better job because I think the visuals do add quite a lot to say, you know, having the animations to make things more explicit in places and having another brick in the wall, the school kids background for that like it's easier to realize that this is a song about the problem of indoctrination and not a song about kids not liking school or something with the stuff that you see more clearly in the movie there's that whole thing with consumerism Mm -hmm. and like there's the hedonistic stuff that comes through in the song um young lust but on the album when she comes up to his apartment Mm-hmm. You get her like weird little like, oh, wow, do you own all these guitars and this apartment's so big? And mm-hmm. wow, look at this bathtub. Like you get all that stuff, which sort of s- suggests that he has all this stuff and it doesn't mean anything. But the inclusion of the what sh- what shall we do now? The end of that song is just like a list of expensive things that don't really mean anything. Like it's a nice guitar and a nice guitar, a nice car and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's that's a good example of where the film does do that better. So I think in some ways the film does a better job of it, but when it comes to that full narrative of Pink, I think that it gets very muddied by everything else in the film, and it is too easy to fight club it. I agree. I would say that the album does a better job of communicating the personal narrative and like just the the messages about not letting your trauma keep you from connecting with other people and walling you off and keeping you from reaching out and accepting help when you need it because the film does kind of have a lot of other things that can kind of muddy the message and make it hard to see that through line all the way to the end but I think that the larger social issues are a lot clearer in the film they're in fact inescapable in the film. They really beat you over the head with it. I mean, they're in the album, but they're a lot more peripheral in the album. They're more context for this person's issues, as in like his father died in the war and war sucks and he had a traumatic experience of being in school and school is traumatic for a lot of people, but a lot of those larger themes of you know, state violence and bigotry are not clear in the album in the same way. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, well put. Thanks. That was easy. Yeah. They're not always long, meandering explorations. Sometimes we can figure it out. (laughs) But I think the bigger question is, what is the most disturbing thing you thought was going to happen that then didn't happen? in the film or in the album, but probably the film, I think, is really what I'm asking. I think either the possibility of him sleeping with the groupie Mm -hmm. and that being like an overly graphic scene Mm -hmm. with a questionable age for the groupie. Yeah. Like that was was a concern for me. But I think probably it's when he's shaving his body and he picks up the razor blade and it's not clear what he's going to do. Like I thought we were going to get into a whole host of body horror stuff there that like... Yeah, agreed. I For me, it would either be that, the shaving part, like that he was going to like horribly mutilate his face or something. Or like or something else. Or something else. Or in the like weird circus judgment scene, when he's like in the weird tower, it really seemed like the judge was going to like poop on him or something. <laughs> I know that's ridiculous, but I think that's telegraphed in a lot of ways. And I was just like, this is going to be really gross and fucked up. And then that didn't happen. So then I was just like, okay, well, then it's just my brain that's gross and fucked up, apparently. No, no, you're you're fair. There's a line in there that, like, I think it's the way that he hurt his wife and mother makes the judge want to defecate. Yeah. Um, Like, he does say that. He says that while Pink is in this tower and the judge is, like, over there on the edge with, like, these giant enlarged buttocks. And it's just like okay what are we getting in for here i like that the film was able to set you up to a point where you were like yeah that seems like a thing that might happen (laughs) it did i mean it really did it was such a weird movie and they they did the fucking flowers thing already which was also disturbing and gross with the like consuming thing and the weird birth thing and the weird birth thing like they had done enough disturbing body things with the animation in particular that you know, all bets are off. It's like, yeah, maybe they are going to have that happen. I, I believe that they would do it. Uh, 
I'm glad it was not just me. <laughs> there is um an old phrase uh, which is the law is an ass. Hmm. I wonder if that's an intentional reference. Yeah, maybe. Oh, it's actually from Oliver Twist. There we go. Huh. Okay, well, I think that that's a good answer to the big question. Do you have any fun facts? Yeah. I do. Oh, excellent. Glad uh, one of us does. One is that Bob Hoskins appears in this film in oh, yeah. the role of the manager. He is only in a few scenes. I'm not sure why. It's a very strange role for him. Although he does have a lot of breath. Had a lot of breath. If you're not familiar with Bob Hoskins, you might know him as Mr. Smee from Hook with Robin Williams. Or as Mario in the Super Mario Brothers movie, which I'm sure is exactly what he'd like to be remembered for. It isn't. I remember us talking about this and looking up stuff about him, and apparently, like, he regretted having made that film. Yeah, that's fair. I think everyone regretted him having made that film. Also, there is a hidden message in the song Empty Spaces. Oh, exciting. In the most traditional way. This is something I came across when I was looking up something else. Is um, it where, like, the first word of each line spells something or something? No, no, no. Traditional music way. Ah. Um, it's uh, just before the lyric section. There's a message that only appears on the left channel. So it's not like mixed to both speakers. And it sounds like nonsense. But if you play it backwards, it is uh, someone saying, well, presumably Roger Waters saying, Hello, Looker. Congratulations. You have just discovered the secret message. Please send your answer to Old Pink, care of the funny farm, Chalfant. And then someone else saying, Roger, Caroline's on the phone. And him saying, okay. Just... How strange. <laughs> Those are the only fun facts I have this time. That's surprisingly delightful. Right? Yeah. It's just like a... Cute little thing. In this you found thing. the thing. Yeah. There's an episode of Red Dwarf where there's a whole load of stuff that plays backwards. Mm. And if you record it and play it the other way, what they're actually saying is... You know what's really sad? Some loser is going to record this and play it backwards <laughs> just to find out what we're saying. Mm. That's not verbatim, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> okay, any uh, follow-up or late thoughts? I don't think we do. Not at the moment. Okay, then I think that's it for this episode. You can find us on social media. It's all down in the show notes below, including our email address where you can contact us. Let's say we do have a Patreon now, so if you would like to support the show, that would be fantastic. And if you could also tell any of your friends who like podcasts or supporting random Patreons, that would also be good. We're trying to work out whether we can make this be a self-sustaining little enterprise rather than just the hobby it's been for a while. We'd also really appreciate it if you could join us on Discord. If you decide to support us on Patreon, we'd really love to have more interactivity and more of a full dialogue with the people who are enjoying the content. That way you can interact and tell us when we say things that are wrong. Yeah, or when we miss a really obvious point that you and your brilliance have thought of. Yep. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next time and join us on Discord. Are we done? I think we're done. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. And on Patreon. And on Discord. Do you want to try that again? Yeah. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time and join us on Discord. Once more for luck. <laughs> oh my god. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next week. Ah, nope. Why are you making me redo this? I'm sure one of those. I'm not making you redo this. I asked if you wanted to. Uh, The last one will be fine. It amounts to the same thing. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you will join us next time.